we can make profits, we can still earn revenue, but we can still be socially conscious and we can care about where our items come from and if it's going to hurt our environment. So I feel like millennials are living through a lot of the crises that the generation before them kind of created. And then they're like, we have to kind of change things. Hi, I'm Arushi Jain. Welcome to Scaling Impact, where we interview social innovators, people who make their life's mission to work for the betterment of others. They are the change makers, the fearless, the compassionate and large-hearted individuals who also know how to scale up. This initiative is supported by the Luce Institute's Inventorship Program, which helps students invent their own social innovation projects using entrepreneurial thought and action to accelerate social and economic impact. Today, we speak with a dynamic social entrepreneur who's passionate about economic empowerment for women. Nataya Walker is the founder of Seeds of Fortune, a nonprofit that helps women of color in high school navigate college scholarships and application processes to learn financial literacy. She started the program in 2014 during her senior year at Babson College, where she had earned a full tuition scholarship. She has helped college applicants earn more than $8 million in scholarships and grants and has been featured as the Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2021. Let Nataya instill seeds of wisdom in us as she speaks about her seeds of fortune. Thank you so much for giving your time, Nitya. I know you're a very, very busy person, especially at this moment. Tell us about yourself, your journey with Seeds of Fortune, and what inspired you to take this path. So my name is Nataya Walker, and I'm the founder and executive director of Seeds of Fortune. And I feel like life is multi-threaded, so it took me a couple of pathways to get to how I kind of started Seeds of Fortune. I am an alumni of Babson College, and while I was there, I started to experience a lot of different interactions when it came to money. And one of the first interactions was how different Babson was. It's located in Wellesley, how different it was from my hometown in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, and the economic wealth disparity between the two locations. And it kind of struck me how some people have so much and then other people have so little. And then kind of narrowing it down to my own like college experience and process, I got a scholarship to Babson through the Posse Leadership Foundation. And I worked with a woman in my senior year summer, summer going into my senior year, to be able to learn how to get scholarships after I learned her daughter got $150,000 to go to Spelman College at the time. And going through my Babson experience among my other peers in college, I realized that Everybody didn't have the resources to learn how to get scholarships to college. And it really affected me when one of my friends, she was going to school in Virginia. And during one of our summer breaks, she said she had to unenroll in her school because she couldn't afford to stay there for the rest of the semesters and had to return back to the city to go to school. And I was like, wow, what if somebody never taught me how to get scholarships to college? Things could have been harder for me. And then what would happen if somebody with this knowledge, and I had the knowledge, gave it to other young women of color? Additionally, on top of just the stresses of paying for college, managing money while in college was a pretty difficult thing I saw for minority peers. And I felt that, you know, going to Babson, I realized that our Caucasian counterparts, like they were having discussions with their parents about money much younger and that it was important to talk about money. And money is such a big part of the college process that nobody really talks to you about. All they say is like fill out FAFSA and then like you kind of have to take it from there. So in the U.S., there's a lot of complexities around 
affording college and it continues to get more expensive every year. That's beautiful, Nitya, and really touching, really personal. Thank you for sharing. So why do you think community engagement is important for organizations and how have you developed a community and leveraged it to create value? So community involvement is very important in creating a nonprofit organization because really your nonprofit is owned by the community. Like the community are constituents in your business. And if you don't have the community buy-in, you really have no nonprofit at the end of the day. Because every nonprofit has some type of social good or some type of mission that they're trying to fulfill at the end of the day. When we were building Seeds of Fortune, I was in college and I needed high school students to be able to participate in the program. But because I was almost a senior in college, I literally knew no high school kids at all. So I actually went back to one of my community organizations that I was a part of when I was in high school and told them about the idea of Seeds of Fortune and what I wanted to do. And then they got um, girls from their organization that they felt like could have great potential to get scholarships for college and allowed me to work with them for the summer. So that's how we got our first kind of like foot in the door. And then in our first year to fundraise money, we raised a whopping $600, which was a lot when we started the organization with $12. But we had a brunch to celebrate the girls going into college and to welcome the new scholars into the organization. And it was people from my church. It was my mom's friends. It was my best friends. It was people from the organization that helped me get the scholars, their parents. They all came together, brought tickets to the brunch to celebrate the girls. And we finally were able to have enough money to incorporate as a nonprofit organization later that year. So it definitely was a community effort and definitely can't have a nonprofit without getting the community's buy-in about what you're trying to do and how you're trying to create change in the world. Wow. I can totally relate because I'm running a venture. I just started it actually. And it is really, really difficult to get that kind of support and reach out to as many people as you need the right people actually so yeah thanks fundraising like you mentioned very briefly is the hardest task for any organization so how do you run a sustainable venture solely based on fundraising and can you share some strategies or insights on how to be a successful fundraiser yeah so for me i feel like it is very hard for nonprofits especially nonprofits of color to fundraise money and that's particularly because when you are a nonprofit of color, you're usually going to people that you know to start your nonprofit. So for me, we did the brunch, people bought tickets to it. We were able to take home the profit margins from that to be able to run the organization for the next year. But there comes a time and capacity where your circle no longer has enough money to support the vision and the growth of your organization. And then it's like, okay, like, what do you do? How do you get more money now? And that's like the hardest part of fundraising. So it's very important to have kind of diverse streams of income, I would say, as a beginning nonprofit organization, thinking about all the different ways that you can make money. So before we would only depend on the gala to make, or at the time it was just like a brunch celebration to bring in money for the organization. And that was good because it's always good when you're having a fundraiser to have something where people get something out of coming to your event. So we found that to be successful. But then we started to have to do other things like create earned revenue. And that's when we had to start to charge the girls a membership fee to be a part of the organization, which was better for us, too, because the girls had a certain responsibility and buy-in to the organization that we needed. 
for the organization to continue to be successful. And then after that, we started a campaign called Sponsor a Scholar. And that became one of our most popular campaigns. And it would be, we'd match a girl to a professional. And at that time I had just started my career in media. So I knew a lot of media professionals and different people in different industries as a, a working young professional. And I would tell them like, I would have profiles of the girls. Just like, like Ashley, she wants to go to this college and her dreams are to be a doctor. And this girl, she wants to be an engineer and you're an engineer. You know how hard it is to get your foot in the door. Would you sponsor a girl for $20 a month? And that's how we started to get traction with people giving. And then we were able to increase those giving, the giving amounts each year that correlated with the graduating class. So it would always be give. At the time when we started, it was like $17 a month for the class of 2017, $18 a month for the class of 2018. And each person would sponsor a scholar in our incoming class. And they would be supported financially in our organization. And it made them feel good because they had a girl that they were connected to in some type of way, either her future profession app she was going to be in, they're from a similar neighborhood as her. And we found that to be a successful way to start to garner fundraising. To make it sustainable, the subscription model is really helpful for us because we use PayPal as one of our payment systems, and they had it where you can put them on annual subscriptions or you can put them on evergreen subscriptions, and the person could cancel when they wanted to cancel, which created more sustainable um, revenue streams for us. But now that we're a little bit of an older organization, we're turning more to earn revenue streams because fundraising each year could go up or down. And it's a little hard, especially because most donations come from individual giving. Like for example, COVID, people losing their jobs. If 75% of your revenues come from just fundraising alone, um, you could lose a lot of your operating and programming money coming into the organization. So now we've transitioned to more earned revenue models where we've created a business model where there's value built in for the person that's giving us money to support our program instead of it just only being a feel-good type of contribution. Yeah, I think earned revenue is definitely more sustainable. And yeah, you've shared a lot of interesting insights on that front. I think the idea of me to do this podcast is to identify which are the organizations that are different from the others and how are they able to do this? How are they able to sustain and grow? So very interesting. I'm curious, who are these amazing people who donate and invest, you know, what kind of backgrounds and is there a particular way to reach them or is it just through multiple networks? And you already touched upon this, but do you foresee changes in philanthropic patterns post pandemic era? Definitely. So the people that were originally part of our sponsor, the Scholar Campaign, were like people that were young professionals or professionals that have been in their field, but they understood what it took to get to college. They either had student loan debts themselves that they were still paying back, or they were really financially conscious and knew the power of a girl going to college with the least amount of debt possible, what that could do for her future. In addition to that, employee resource groups, so ERGs, inside of corporations. So corporations have their own corporate responsibility budgets, but also ERGs have small budgets as well that they can do towards causes or to interact with nonprofit organizations. And we would meet professionals along the way. Like I would go to a networking event and meet a professional and they would introduce me to the head of their ERGs. And the ERGs would sponsor a scholar for the year. 
now that we've evolved a little bit, because sometimes it can be hard to match a girl specifically with the expectations of a certain profession and things like that, we just have them sponsor the whole class now so that we can have the diversity of whatever major they, there's no pressure. Like, let's say they didn't want to be a STEM major anymore and they really decided they loved music. I don't know, I'm just making it up. There was no pressure to kind of stay in that profession because somebody was sponsoring you in that way and they could explore that. So now they sponsor classes. But yeah, it comes from professionals of color that understand they've been there before. They might have student loan debt and they understand the burden that that plays with trying to be able to lift yourself up economically. They're financially conscious, so they want to see a better future and to close the wealth gap between Caucasians and minorities or corporations and their ERGs also support us as well. Got it. How do you add Seeds of Fortune define impact and what are the metrics you use to measure success? Yeah, so we use a few metrics to measure success. Typically, we'll have um, a survey when the girls come into the program about how much they know about college access because our mission is to basically financially empower young women of color starting with their college process. And we found that the college process is the first time where a young woman or any young person, by the time they get to their senior year of high school, they're going to be making a financial decision about college, which is not really emphasized. It's really about the educational side of college that's more emphasized than the financial part of it. So through the girl going through our program, we want to take the college process and allow them to be able to learn different things about money and economics, if that makes sense. So they're able to, when they come in, they might not know much about banking or saving. They don't know about the college process and like what it entails. Maybe they have a general concept of it. But by the time they leave our program, they're more confident when it comes to money. They're able to appeal their financial aid letters. We also use a metric how much scholarship and grant money they receive compared to the debt ratio that they would have for their freshman year of college. We also use, we our program goes all the way out until they finish college. So did they graduate from college? Were they employed when they graduated from college? As well as if she has a savings account by the time she finishes college, does she have an investment account? Does she have a savings account? I think a lot of metrics going on because we have them for so long that we have these um, success touch points. But definitely our first one is the amount of debt that the girl takes on when she graduates from high school. So our percentage yield is usually that our girls get at least three-fourths of full rides to college to start off life with the least amount of debt as possible. And then we also have the soft metrics until they finish college and then college graduation and employment. That's really nice. Why do you think millennials are showing great interest in impact-driven work? I think millennials are showing more interest and Gen Z are showing great interest in impact work because I feel like one, particularly for our culture, which is African-American, African diaspora, Southeast Asians, Latinos in particular, also among Caucasians, but our parents really, they're either the ones that migrated to the U.S., right? So they were picking very secure jobs, jobs that made them financially stable and secure. And because of that, they didn't really have time to think about, okay, this is going to create social impact, right? What am I doing? Is this creating social impact? Like it's really about survival and sustaining your family and making sure that they had a better life than the one before you. Now that they've kind of made those sacrifices, the millennial generation does have a little bit more flexibility to think about their dreams and aspirations and how they can change the world and look at life a different way. Additionally, the 2008-2009 recession really changed the mindset, I feel like, of millennials because they were graduating either college or high school at that time period. So they really saw what economic greed can do to destroy families, to destroy 
everything that people have worked for for their entire lives, as well as trap them economically for at least the first five years starting off their adulthood lives. And from that, I feel like there was a push kind of like right now, how there's like this whole racial injustice push. There was a push for things to be more equitable and to start thinking about our society and the accountability that we have for our society differently. So you had Occupy Wall Street and a lot of these for-profit but social cause ventures that started to pop up in an integration of a lifestyle where we can make profits, we can still earn revenue, but we can still be socially conscious and we can care about where our items come from and if it's going to hurt our environment. So I feel like millennials are living through a lot of the crises that the generation before them kind of created. And then they're like, we have to kind of change things, especially Gen Z now. Like there's certain things that millennials, we're not even thinking about that Gen Z is like, oh no, we can't stand for this. And they're out there and they're protesting. So I think it's really like the shift of the times and the experiences that they went through. One, the parents, you know, going through survival them having the flexibility to think beyond and now they have the freedoms to be able to kind of like okay what are my dreams what are my passions and then the economic crisis really pushing them that way and as well as the ability to see all of the damage that environmentally economically and socially we're kind of are at as a society that's true and very nicely put and I must say that you have a lot of courage to start a nonprofit, and I am really really inspired by that Finally, I just wanted to ask if you'd like to share uh, some of the stories or anecdotes of girls who have been benefited by your scholarship. Sure. So, I mean, there's so many. They're so wonderful. They just make me feel so warm inside. We just finished college essay season. We're going to go back into it in the fall. But when I look at where the girls come from when they're like 16 in our program and to see them graduate out into the real world and become working women is just like light and day. But some of the girls that come to mind when I think about girls that have gone through such um, transformational journeys and have really like succeeded and success is different to each person too, just to, you know, but um, one of our scholars, she knew she wanted to be an engineer and she was a part of like a robotics club when she was in high school. She did Girls Who Code. She did our scholars program. She went to college at HBCU studied mechanical engineering, and then ended up getting an internship at Chrysler. And now she's working full-time at Chrysler and is earning her graduate degree in mechanical engineering. So just to see like a girl come into our program, write her essay, like, oh, I have a dream to be an engineer. And then to see it pull through fruition is like an amazing experience. We had another young woman. She's like very sharp. She was very sharp when she came into our program, but she was like, you know, like a type A, like just focused on school, like get good grades. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was just like, I was like, you, you, what are you doing outside? Like, this is great that you have amazing. I mean, of course, we want you to have a great, but like, what do you like outside of this? Like, what yeah. do you like, like to do outside of this? And we put her in this high school program with Mount Sinai that allowed the high school juniors and seniors to shadow doctors for the summer. And yeah, it was amazing. And she got to shadow doctors and she already wanted to go into the medical profession. She knew that, but she kind of didn't really have a lot on her resume that was showing Mm -hmm. that in high school. And she ended up getting the Posse scholarship to Smith College under their STEM Posse. And she was able to do great internships because she was a part of the high school program at Mount Sinai. She was able to actually get accepted. Well, it was only because of that, because she excelled in college as well. But she was able to get accepted to the Mount Sinai Flex Med program, which actually allows you by your junior year to be accepted into medical school. So it's been really great to see them like 
just flourish and like see their like see dreams become like a reality. Wow, that is really really inspiring. Nice. We have time for one last question, and I'm going to make it very quick. Just want to end with some advice for graduates entering the nonprofit space, and I I really want you to debunk the myths about careers in this impact space. So um, it depends on what you're doing in the impact space. Like if you're going out of school and wanting to run a nonprofit organization, I think that when I decided to create a nonprofit organization, like my ignorance was bliss because I really did not understand. I went into it like I just want to not fix, but like if I can just contribute a little bit to this bigger problem, the world can still be just a better place. And just like with that inkling and that desire, it took me down this whole path and journey that I never thought I would be on, honestly. So like when you go into the impact space, I feel like you have to go into it with your heart because it will test you. It is high of highs, low of lows, to be honest. But I feel like when you're giving back to the universe, you get tenfold back. In terms of like the myth that you can't make a lot of money in the nonprofit space, it's like a billion, nonprofit is like a billion dollar industry itself. And depending on how well the nonprofit is run and how big it is, you can look at their 990s. And there are some nonprofits that pay very, 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 very well. So I wouldn't be afraid of that. And then I would say that if you're going to the social impact space, you can decide too. like you can be in a for-profit company and still be in a social impact space, or you can go into a nonprofit organization and be in the social impact space. And a lot of times it's like a hybrid and they're kind of intertwining with one another. So I say going it with your heart and just going with it open, going in it to learn. I've learned so much. I was going into a career of entertainment and I'm still in entertainment or media, but I had to learn a lot about the education space. You have to kind of take your own experiences and put them to the side and really think about your constituents and the people that you're trying to serve. Because although you've had your experiences in life, when you're starting to serve a population that is outside of yourself, there's a lot that you have to learn and grow and weave through throughout the process. So good luck, graduates. It's a road. It's a journey. But I would say it's like been one of the most rewarding experiences of my young adult life thus far. Wow. It's been fascinating listening to you, Nithya. It's so nice to see that you're so clear headed with your goals and how you've like, you know, really carved out your career in this path. I hope that I'm able to take even a one tenth of it and also the other graduates. Thank you so much once again for your time. I think you've covered everything. It's been lovely speaking with you. Stay in touch. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.